there's been a 40% increase in registrations since 2014. And many lobbyists today, I think, are feeling pressure to register themselves ahead of time, not to get in trouble after the fact. And so registrations have become a lot more common. But I think it's interesting to note that, you know, we all hear so much about Russia being a foreign influence actor these days. And when you search the DOJ's FARA registry, which anyone can do and locate and identify who is registered and who hasn't, the number of registrations from Russia is in the single digits. And so it does beg the question of whether all those who actually should be registering are. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 12th, 2020. This week on Lawfare's Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Joshua R. Fatal about a fascinating law review article he's written, Farah on Facebook, Modernizing the Foreign Agents Registration Act to Address Propagandists on Social Media. The Foreign Agents Registration Act, known as FARA, is an American law that requires lobbyists for foreign entities to register with the Justice Department. It made the headlines recently when Special Counsel Robert Mueller claimed that Russians spreading social media disinformation around the 2016 election failed to register under the law. Josh argues that Mueller's indictments represent an innovative new use of FARA, and he suggests that the law could offer a mechanism for the U.S. government to address disinformation campaigns. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 520, Joshua R. Fatal on Fighting Disinformation with the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Before we begin, we have an update from last week's episode with Lisa Kaplan and Sophie Lawton, who discussed their research on The Soul Publishing, a group of companies based in Cyprus that has produced both viral craft videos and some political content with a pro-Russian slant. After we recorded, a spokesperson from The Soul reached out to us with a statement, which we're sharing here. The statement says, While we can appreciate Lisa Kaplan's commitment to bring attention to the very serious issue of election interference and campaign disinformation, her focus on us is misguided. The Soul Publishing is a global digital studio that specializes in fun and entertaining content that showcases craft ideas, riddles, games, and DIY projects. A small number of animated videos on our Smart Banana channel were found to include incorrect facts and they were removed. We take the utmost pride in getting information correct for our audience. So we have taken down the content in question and are continuously reviewing our internal fact-checking process across all of our channels. In addition, we made an editorial decision to no longer post any historical-focused content. We would also like to provide further insight into our business model. Similar to other digital content creators and publishers in our industry, The Soul Publishing has multiple ways to monetize across its social media platforms, utilizing the wide range of monetization procedures and solutions offered by our platform partners. For example, YouTube monetization includes programmatic ad sales via AdSense, posts with paid product placement. While on Facebook, we utilize the platform's in-stream advertising, and we also monetize via advertising provided by ad networks. Having said that, we work closely with our platform partners and strictly adhere to their policies. We've never worked with any government or semi-government organization of any country, 
will produce content curated for a third party, except for advertising partners. Advertising partnerships are clearly disclosed and comply with both social media platforms and local regulations. That's the statement. With that, on to our discussion with Josh Fatal. So, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Just to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this area? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I graduated law school a couple of years ago. And during my third year of law school, I was trying to come up with a topic for um, an article for a journal. And it was right around the time when the issue of disinformation was really in the news And we were all sort of starting to get a sense of what had happened in and around the 2016 election. And I wanted to write something that was both timely, but that addressed one of the laws that could potentially be involved in the disinformation space from a new way. And so I took a look at what are the laws that might be tools at the government's disposal in handling or tackling the disinformation threat. And one that kept popping up was FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which seemed in some ways to be very well suited to the disinformation problem, but hadn't seemed to really be explored as such. And so that seemed like a ripe area to dive into and to try to determine whether FARA actually does have a role to play when tackling the disinformation threat. Awesome. So... I've wanted to do an episode on Farah since we started this because in all of the conversation about foreign interference and propaganda, it seems like a law that was passed specifically in response to the threat of foreign propaganda uh, would be a good thing to talk about. So maybe we can start by just talking about how the act works and I guess when was it passed and what was it passed in reaction to what was the threat perceived at the time? So FARA was initially passed in 1938, so quite a long time ago, when the threat of political propaganda was quite different, in some ways similar, but also very different to the type of threat that we're facing today. The classic sort of model, the thing to picture in your head um, when you're thinking of what types of propaganda existed in 1938 would be sort of your person standing on a street corner um, in a protest or by themselves holding up a sign. And the ideologies that the United States was particularly concerned about were Nazism and communism. And so in 1938, in the lead up to World War II, there was an effort to, in the words of the first House American, um, House Un-American Activities Committee, to shine a spotlight of pitiless publicity on agents who were operating on United States soil in our cities, but doing so on behalf of either a foreign government or a foreign principle, however, that was defined. And so FARA was initially used as a tool to register those types of agents. But as the time went on, the type of threat had become different. And so after World War II, the government, well, one thing happened was that Congress passed the Smith Act, which focused specifically on activities to overthrow the United States government by force. And so there was a new, sort of a new player in town when it came to 
seditional propaganda in its most extreme forms. But the concerns became less about sign-holding Nazis or communists and more about other less public ways to influence the political process. And so the concern came to be less about propagandists and more about lobbyists. And so from the 1960s and on, and especially including after the Lobbying Disclosure Act was passed in the 1990s, FARA basically became a lobbying disclosure statute. And the early model around the time of World War II, which focused on criminal prosecutions, switched over to one that, is, that has been focused on voluntary compliance and civil penalties. That all, of course, came to change um, around the time when Special Counsel Mueller decided to use FARA differently a couple of years ago. And so what precisely does FARA require if I decide that I really want to be, you know, putting information out there on behalf of a foreign government and I want to be you know, rigorously compliant with the law. First, what do I need to do? And second, how many people actually follow through with that legal obligation? So I guess the good and the bad thing about FARA is that the requirements are not very strict and they're not very narrowly defined. And so the basic requirements under FARA is that agents of a foreign principle, and the use of the word principle there is important because It doesn't have to be on behalf of a foreign government, per se. Any foreigner counts as a foreign principle. And so anyone who is an agent of a foreign principle acting within the United States to influence or impact um, the American political process has to register with the Department of Justice. And that's sort of as simple as it sounds. There is a form that an agent could fill out identifying who they are, who the principle is, addressing information, some more details, and then the form asks for what kind of activities that agent is engaged in. And then if that agent also is involved in the transmission of any informational materials, which tellingly used to be referred to as political propaganda in the statute, but has since been, the language has been changed to refer to it as informational materials more broadly, which basically includes anything that is transmitted to two or more people. Those informational materials have to be registered as well with DOJ, and they have to include a label stating that that material is the property of an agent of a foreign principle. How many actual foreign agents comply with FARA? So it has changed dramatically. There's been a 40% increase in registrations since 2014. And many lobbyists today, I think, are feeling pressure to register themselves ahead of time, not to get in trouble after the fact. And so registrations have become a lot more common. But I think it's interesting to note that, you know, we all hear so much about Russia being a foreign influence actor these days. And when you search the DOJ's FARA registry, which anyone can do and locate and identify who is registered and who hasn't, the number of registrations from Russia is in the single digits. And so it does beg the question of whether all those who actually should be registering are. Totally. And I mean, I think it's just this really 
interesting thing where you've got this law that's all about foreign propaganda in the US and yet here we are running a podcast about disinformation and political interference and this is the first time that we've talked about Farah and you don't hear Farah brought up in a lot of these conversations a lot of the time but one of the but you did note that it, it sort of exploded back on the scene a little bit a couple of years ago with the Mueller indictment so maybe uh, we can unpack what exactly happened there and and why that's different to the other conversation. So let's let's start with how did it explode back on the scene? So it exploded in two ways, which I think basically presents a sort of fork in the road in terms of how the Department of Justice chooses to use FARA going forward. So the first way in which it exploded was Special Counsel Mueller uh, making use of FARA to go after people like Paul Manafort and you know, Michael Flynn retroactively filed under FARA. Gregory Craig, former Obama White House counsel, um, was charged with making false statements in the context of a FARA investigation. And so FARA was used to go after these sort of DC heavyweights who had in the past done work for either, in, this case, in these cases, it was mostly foreign governments, and to make sure that those activities were properly documented. But at the same time, in Mueller's 2018 indictment of the Internet Research Agency and several other Russian individuals and organizations, one charge brought against those actors was conspiracy to defraud the United States. And one of the underlying acts on which that charge was brought was that these actors, these agents, had contravened FARA's requirements by causing others to act as agents of a foreign principle without registering under FARA. And so you both had FARA come onto the scene again in terms of prosecutions of, of lobbyists and other DC insider type of behavior, but also in a new way using it in the context of social media actors. And so you you write that Mueller's use of FARA to apply to social media actors is sort of unprecedented in terms of DOJ enforcement, but that at the same time, Mueller, as you say, doesn't actually charge the Internet Research Agency troll farm with a FARA charge per se. He charges them with a conspiracy charge for for failing to register. Is he kind of like playing with fire there in any way by having that conspiracy charge without the underlying precedent for charging someone with FARA for social media activity? Like how how far out is this legal theory? So that's something that's currently being litigated right now in the federal court in D.C. I think it's interesting to note that this is one of the rare cases where I think both the head of the DOJ FARA unit at the time and the defense counsel or some of the indicted actors basically both said, you know, this has never really happened before, that FARA was in any way used against actors who had never set foot on U.S. soil. And there's been an ongoing back and forth between the government and the defense counsel, and it's still ongoing, the case has not yet gone to trial, regarding exactly what the government's theory is and what the government might want to try to prove or have to try to prove at trial in order to 
make the case for a conspiracy to defraud the United States. The defense counsel has argued that the government is actually charging these actors under FARA without explicitly doing so. And the government has a strong argument to say that the conspiracy crime in and of itself does not require proof of criminal activity with regards to the specific statute. So you can be charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States and not actually have been charged with a FARA violation. But I think the question is real and it has been raised that once you are already saying that FARA may apply to these people, or to put it this way, if you're saying that these agents did not fulfill their obligations under FARA, then even if in court you're not proving or you don't have to prove that they violated FARA, essentially in some ways you are saying that these agents did have an obligation under FARA and that going forward, maybe similar agents do have to register. And so I think even if the parties and the court manage to avoid the question in this trial of assessing whether or not these agents actually had a duty to register under FARA, by positing or by arguing that these agents did not register under FARA, you're essentially saying that there is some obligation that they should have. And so I think that poses the question either for this court to consider or for a future court to consider of whether FARA's terms can and do apply to internet troll farms. And the answer to that is a complicated one because the statute was not designed with these sorts of actors in mind. So why is it that this use of FARA to apply to social media is so novel? And why is it that the statute, as you say, is sort of in some ways a really good fit for addressing this kind of thing, and in some ways an awkward fit? Also, to begin, I would say there were a couple of very basic statutory problems with applying FARA to these actors. The first one being that the language of FARA applies to agents who are acting within the United States. And so that poses two questions. One is, who are the agents in the current landscape? And two, are those agents operating within the United States? And so the question of who are the agents is a tricky one. If you say that the agent is a Russian operator who's operating from Russia on behalf of, let's say, a foreign principal who is arguably the Internet Research Agency, you sort of wound up in a weird place because, you know, traditionally the agent is someone acting in the United States and the foreign principal is the person outside the United States. But you sort of muddied the waters between who is the agent and who is the principal if they both are effectively foreign principals. And so probably the better way to go about it would be to try to look for agents who were American or U.S. citizens who were acting on behalf of a foreign principal. But if the American was doing so without knowing, right, we had a lot of stories of cases where, you know, your average American Facebook user would come across a Facebook page that they thought was American or they thought was kosher, for lack of a better phrase, but was actually the project of a troll farm. 
they wouldn't really have to register under FARA because FARA requires that its violators do so willfully. And so you're not willfully acting as an agent of a foreign principle if you don't know that the activity you're engaging with is even foreign. But if that American agent did know that the activities were foreign, then they may actually have to register under FARA. But that then moves you from the statutory language problem to the technical question of at what point do we even know that a certain Facebook page or a certain Twitter account with a high degree of confidence sufficient to require registration by the Department of Justice is actually the property of a foreign agency. So you've mentioned or we've talked about the fact that there's been an uptick in registrations recently. And I'd love to just like talk about one example. So in in 2017, the Department of Justice required RT, uh, Russia Today, to be registered as a foreign agent under FARA. And yet it's still sitting on YouTube, broadcasting away. It has some 3.8 million subscribers. So does FARA actually change anything? Like, is that a description of FARA working as it's intended? That's a great question. I think it gets to what FARA is intended to do. And the way sort of FARA works as a constitutional matter is that it is constitutional precisely because you're not censoring material. You don't have to remove the material, which in many ways is very different than what the social media companies are doing now in terms of removing material that violates their terms of service. So FARA is a different model where the content remains, but informational materials, which, which would include a video or a post, those are labeled. And so when you're looking at that material, you're aware that it's political propaganda. I listened to um, a guest you had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Brendan Nyan, and he said that when material is labeled as false, it tends to be viewed 80% less than if it wasn't so labeled. And so I think that gives us good reason to suspect that labels actually matter. And if materials are labeled as false, it may lead to fewer viewers. But I think the question then becomes, how does a model that involves labeling work in the same universe as one where the social media companies are often taking down content that violates their terms of service? Yeah, I'm totally struck by the divergent approaches as well. I love how optimistic you are about the possibilities of transparency. Um, I hope you're right. One piece of anecdote that um, I, I just always think about in this space, I, there's a fantastic Radiolab episode, I don't know if you've heard it, where they went and tracked down uh, the people that the Russians convinced to dress up as Hillary and Bill Clinton uh, in the back of a van uh, in prison, um, and they'd paid them to, to appear at this rally, and they hadn't realized that it was the Russians that had asked them to do this. And Radiolab said to them, you know, what would you have done if you had known that it was the Russians that were getting you to do this? And they sort of like, there's this pause and then they say, well, I guess we would have asked for more money. So, I mean, Brendan Nyan, I hope is, is, is correct in having some 
optimism about the importance of labeling, but, you know, I guess it's an open question. Do you, so, but you're still really optimistic that sort of transparency, I guess the, the other question is that it's um, not labeling as false, right? It, under FARA, it would just be labeling that this is coming from a foreign agent. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the label would also have to be adapted. So like right now, it says that a certain agent is an agent of a specific foreign principle. And in cases where the foreign principle itself is not actually going to DOJ and registering, right? So, you know, if I'm a little optimistic, maybe about what transparency can do, I'm very pessimistic about the Internet Research Agency coming down to Washington and going to DOJ and saying, hey, let's label our troll accounts. <laughs> yep. So knowing that that's never going to happen, I think the question then has to be, even if that foreign principle has not registered, can you craft a label under the statute that captures the essence of what the act is getting at? And so I think either way, Congress would have to weigh in in terms of what type of language was acceptable. It reminds me of what Twitter is rolling out, um, where the platform is going to, they say, flag content that has been deceptively edited with a little box, the way that Facebook has material that third-party fact-checkers have flagged as potentially false or misleading um, with a little sort of box in front of it. That this is this is kind of, it seems like you're proposing in a way the Justice Department sort of getting a piece of that action and having a, a similar labeling system. Is that a, a fair description of sort of how you're envisioning FARA might apply to these new kinds of actors? I would say that I think that's the way FARA, if it were applied, would have to be applied. You would have to focus on the labeling aspect and not the registration aspect. And when it comes to labeling, you wouldn't really want to be in a situation where DOJ would force social media companies to put a label on their content because then you run into your First Amendment problems again where, let's say, DOJ thinks a piece of content is the material of a foreign principle, but Facebook's own fact-checkers are leaning towards it being authentic content. And so making Facebook put a check mark or slap a label on that content would probably be a First Amendment violation. And so the only way to really do this, if that's the path the government chose to take, would probably be a model of voluntary compliance where Facebook and Twitter and the other social media companies were in dialogue with DOJ in terms of making those labeling decisions. But I do think that you're very right in pointing out that there are sort of a number of different approaches potentially being used at the same time. And I don't know that including FARA in that mix is necessarily the right way to go. But I do think that we have seen increasingly since 2016, the tech companies working more and more with the government. And so often now, when you know a social media company announces a takedown, that post will often say that they have discussed and presented that material with the United States government. And so I think in some ways having the government be involved is helpful because law enforcement and the intelligence community often has access to sources that maybe the social media platforms themselves do not. But on the flip side, you really 
can't do attribution if you're not looking at the accounts. And so it's often the case that I would imagine that Facebook and Twitter and other companies are in the best place to identify who are the actual agents because they're the ones who have the IP addresses, who know what type of information was used to purchase the account or register for the account, can track activity across different platforms. And so I think using Farrow could helpfully move along the trajectory of social media company cooperation with the government in this space. But I don't know that it would clarify things for Americans trying to determine what's fake and what's not any more than social media companies are already doing on their own. Yeah, can I hone in on that a little bit? Because I think you said earlier, the reason why Farah is constitutional is because it doesn't require censorship. So if Farah required foreign agents uh, not to speak or not to disseminate their materials, that would run into the First Amendment, uh, obviously. So I wonder whether using Farah in this context would actually maybe be a step back on the enforcement line, because as you noted, the companies tend to take this stuff down under their coordinated inauthentic behavior policies or similar, depending on which platform it is. And they do so in cooperation with the government, as you just were talking about, which is an interesting issue because, um, you know, it sort of seems like the government is getting around the First Amendment uh, issues perhaps a little bit there by using these private platforms to enforce censorship. But maybe if you if we used Farah uh, the way that you're sort of describing, would it perhaps result in less censorship, more labeling? Is that kind of how you would envisage it working? I think the question is, what space is currently available for FARA to play a meaningful role? And when you look at the way in which the tech companies act in this area, they do take down content that violates their terms of service. But I think oftentimes you do have content that does not violate the terms of service that maybe today winds up both staying up on the site and not being labeled as potentially being false. So for example, Twitter has banned political ads, but has not banned posts that discuss political activity. And we know that Twitter does not have strict identity requirements in terms of users who are just posting on the site. And so I think there may be sort of a gap between account material that the companies themselves are taking down and material suspected of being false, but that the companies are, at least today, choosing to keep up. The problem there, though, is that if you do start using FARA to label accounts that don't quite violate terms of service, but are suspected of being the informational materials of agents of a foreign principal, the government needs to make sure that it's making those decisions both consistently and fairly and doing so with a high enough degree of rigor that a lawsuit can't be brought against the Department of Justice for either not providing due process to accounts that they choose to label or acting arbitrarily and capriciously or under another, a number of other potential grounds. And so the challenge, once you have the government wading in in a more active way, 
I think the problem becomes, can the government make these attribution decisions consistently and offer an opportunity for redress and due process to those accounts that it may decide to, with the help of the social media companies, to label? Yeah, that proposal I found really interesting because I I was reading your description of sort of how you could have an appeal process or a cause of action for people who turn out to have been wrongly identified. And the first thing that came to mind was that, you know, the various Twitter pests and trolls in the same way that they'll, you know, sort of launch GoFundMe campaigns and outrage campaigns if they're suspended from Twitter or Facebook or something like that, that you would get like the equivalent of that, but in the court system of, you know, such and such far right troll um, who may have some kind of link to, you know, Sputnik or RT or something using the appeal process to basically generate outrage in the same way that people often do when they have sort of rages at, at Twitter, that kind of thing. Is that, I'm just sort of curious for, for your thoughts on that. Is that something that the government is equipped or potentially would be equipped to deal with? I think that's a real concern. I think one thing that may be different in this case is because FARA is just, comes with a labeling requirement, you wouldn't actually be suspending any accounts. And so one could envision a system where the social media companies working with DOJ determined which accounts to label. And there was, let's say, a 10-day period in which the account holder could come to the government with a certain amount of evidence suggesting that they are a real person, um, that this is authentic content that is not being willfully um, posted on behalf of a foreign principal. And then the label can go away. So I think that's one way in which this could work. And if you look at past efforts of government activity on social media, I think probably the closest example is the countering violent extremist campaign that was done largely under the Obama administration, where, you know, we had a case where successfully, um, in many cases successfully, the federal government worked with the social media companies to remove uh, material, which again would be different than here because the material is actually not getting removed. But the point is that I think generally or more generally than not, it was the right material that was being affected by that federal initiative. And so I think we have some precedent for the federal government being able to sort of make these attribution and labeling or removal decisions in a fairly, in a fair and consistent way. But I also am under no illusions that doing so would be simple and maybe more of a headache than keeping the government out of this sphere. Yeah, I mean, that just seems like the difficult question. The real, the real issue here is like, how do you draw the line? And how do you decide what that sort of body of material is that needs to be labeled? I mean, I'm a foreigner, for example, and I have been known to express political opinions from time to time, although admittedly, many fewer since the US government said it was going to start um, re- requiring visa applicants to hand over their um, social media handles. But anyway, that's, that's an, an issue for another day. Um, presumably, you know, you wouldn't think that I mean, would you think that I need to register under Farah if I'm um, tweeting political opinions to try and, uh, you know, support a primary candidate, for example? 
So luckily the courts have weighed in here a little bit to try to determine who actually is required to register under FARA. The short answer is no, but I'll tell you why. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Second Circuit issued an opinion a number of years ago discussing what would count as agency under FARA. And the court helpfully looked at the question, not in the context of what makes someone an agent generally um, in a contractual legal sense, but for the purposes of what FARA is getting at. And so the Second Circuit basically said, let's look at the surrounding circumstances of the activity. And specifically, let's look at whether the request to act was made to a specific person and whether the request was specific itself. So for example, if you had a Facebook page that said, we're hosting a rally about you know, X divisive issue tomorrow, everyone is invited to come, and then you, Evelyn, or I clicked attend, and we attended, or we posted something in that page supporting the goal of the rally, we, under the Second Circuit test, we would not be considered agents of a foreign principle because the surrounding circumstances suggest that whoever made the page wasn't tell, asking us as Evelyn and as Josh to specifically be the people to go to this protest. And the ask of us was not super specific either. But if you had um, a foreign actor, which I think is happening more now than in 2016, where some of these Russian and other country troll farms are sort of approaching Americans and buying or asking to buy their social media accounts or ad pages to use for their own activities, and an American citizen knowing that this is a foreign actor asking to purchase the page said sure and sold the page then it would be a specific request to a specific person and the nature of the request would be specific enough to warrant registration. One of the things that struck me while I was reading your article was that we, right now I think a lot of the conversation about the information space and disinformation online has to do with this sort of tension over to what extent do we we think of like what what speech do we want to think as part of our political community and whose speech do we want to think of as part of our political community and where and how do we draw those borders but in a way the actual statute of Farah is sort of a, a reminder that that is a conversation that has been going on for a really long time and so I, I wonder do you think it's fair to say that sort of we're now working through another iteration of a conversation that began in the 1930s with Farah, except we're, we're now applying it in just a very different intellectual environment? Or are we facing something that's new and that's why Farah kind of applies, but there are sort of all these different tweaks that we've discussed that would be needed to um, address this new problem? To give you a typical lawyer's answer, I would say it's both new and old. <laughs> So it's the same old problem in the sense that the United States has always been concerned that foreign voices are attempting to influence the American political process. 
And so there have always been safeguards put into place to protect against that. And so back in the 30s and 40s, I think there was a real interest in making sure that foreign ideologies like Nazism did not take hold on American soil. And since then, since, you know, both since Farah both has become less about political propaganda and since the types of concerns that the government has are less about protests for foreign ideologies, we've seen the same concern move to lobbying, which is a different iteration of the same concern of foreign interests impacting the American political process. I think what's new about applying FARA or what's new about where we currently are is that once you, social media has altered the landscape in the sense that it's not limited to simply what goes on in government offices or to a protest here or there, but ultimately we're talking about a large chunk of the political conversation happening in our country today is happening on these platforms. And so I think there definitely, it definitely presents new challenges in the sense of, do you want a law, be it FARA or any other government legal approach, do you want those type of laws that were traditionally used for political propaganda to be used in the same forum that most of our political conversation is being conducted today. And I think that in some ways, and I think as, as many lawfare readers are probably have thought this way as well, that in some ways you can't just throw your hands up and say that, well, because technology has now altered the landscape, we can no longer attempt to apply some of the same principles. But on the other hand, I think it's definitely more worrisome. And the question of the worry of an innocent American posting their opinion on Facebook and winding up caught in a Farah trap or another type of legislative or executive branch activity, I think is legitimately a worrying trend. And so I think that's why what ultimately has to happen is DOJ needs to think through what the use of Farah is in this space and whether using it for these sorts of actors does more good than potentially harm. Yeah, I mean, the central takeaway, I think, from this conversation is that the central law uh, that the U.S. has to regulate foreign propaganda uh, is fundamentally uh, ill-equipped to deal with the main vector of foreign propaganda. So you have mentioned a, a bunch of reforms that you're sort of you, that you've talked about in your article, and there also have been some discussions about uh, Farah reforms from Congress. Maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview of where those are at, and if there's any likelihood of sort of seeing any of those reforms come into uh, being in the near future. Well, whether or not anything is actually going to get passed, I think is its own question um, and the topic of its own potential podcast, <laughs> but. In some of the reforms that are being pushed through Congress or attempting to be pushed through Congress are reforms that strengthen FARA in the way that Mueller and others have recently been using it. And the DOJ has begun to more aggressively use it, which is to tackle lobbyists and other actors 
who have been on the payroll of a foreign government and or are in the, on the payroll of a foreign government and have not admitted that. And so one type of reform that's currently, I think, in a, in a, in a bill is giving DOJ more civil investigative authority to go after these types of individuals. But of course, that type of authority doesn't really get you anywhere with social media disinformation actors. So another bill that is also slowly making its way through Congress attempts to tackle the 48 hours requirement. So that requirement, as currently in the statute, requires that a copy of all informational materials, being anything that's transmitted, that is being transmitted or disseminated by the foreign principal, by the agent of the foreign principal, needs to be filed with DOJ within 48 hours of the transmission. And so not even talking about social media posts, but talking more generally about the transmission of materials on the internet, questions have arose as to whether the government and the agents can keep up with that pace of requiring that material to be filed within 48 hours as new material is sometimes filed, you know, all the time by some of these actors. And so there have been efforts to extend that requirement. And so you see that, sorry, be, be filed. And so we see that there are some efforts currently underway to make FARA more amenable to the type of both the information and materials and the type of agents that DOJ is interested in going after today. But what we're really not seeing is statutory modifications that work to better apply FARA to social media actors, both in the sense of you know, the posts themselves and then all the questions of agency and attribution and who fits under which category of the statute. All right. Well, if any members of Congress are listening to this podcast, they, they have their marching orders about what needs to be done. So, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a, a great conversation. Thank you for having me. I look forward to seeing what happens with Farah in the days ahead. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Joshua R. Fatal. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Jacob Schultz, and our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on the podcasting app of your choice. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>